0: you want to open the Bible to Romans chapter 9, we'll continue in a series we started last Sunday. It's page 809, if you're using one of the Bibles we have uh, provided. And I'd like to begin with the concept of fairness. What does it mean? What does fairness look like, especially in an environment where mercy and grace show up? What is fairness in a world with mercy and grace? I see this uh, this dynamic shows up most readily for me in my life and my family. We have, uh, each one of our children are very keen on the concept of fair and just. Very keen. Exceptional, really, gifted. <laughs> uh, now, I will say... It, it, um, Their view of justice is self-oriented. So they're the fulcrum upon which the balance hangs. But they're keen. And I have observed the difficulty of trying to create a home. First of all, you have, how do you love multiple children? If you're going to love them equally, you have to love them differently. Because they're different. So, in order to show the same depth of love, you will have to show different kinds of love to different children. And that creates, at times, you're just saying this because you don't love me, right? That creates a comp- an apparent disparity of love in the home, even though, as parents, we're trying to, you know what I'm saying? That's hard. Kids, give your parents some credit. It's hard. Well, then you add mercy and grace on top of that. And I observe very frequently that the presence of mercy in a home that loves justice views mercy as unfairness. If I try to show mercy to one, the other ones are quick to point out, ha-ha, there's inequality in the home. There is injustice in the home because this one got mercy. Mercy. It's as though mercy and justice live at the same level, but they don't. They do not exist on the same plane. Mercy transcends justice. So, one of my kids will get in the car with me after practice. And he's got his shoulder pads on. He's feeling all tough and big. And he is going through that classic male experience of coming from the hunt. That's how he feels. He sits in the car after the long hunt, like a warrior, wounded, and he'll say to me, Dad, we got to go to Rita's. I'm parched, parched. Ah, ah, can barely talk. I'm so thirsty. Now, there's bottles of water, like, all over the field, but nah nothing has the water of life like Rita's. <laughs> so he'll start with this. It only makes sense in the balance, in his balance of justice. This is just how it comes out, is we should go, even though it's... Mom's got dinner ready to go. We should stop on the way to dinner and get a misto. So I typically can deflect. No, no, we can't do that. So then he'll take the tack of mercy. Right? if justice didn't make it happen, let's try mercy. Come on, dad. He'll even throw in a little bit of self-serving. You know you want it. <laughs> they do. they know. They know I'm a sucker. You know you want it. Come on, dad, come on. But they know, they know that this mercy, if seen by the others, will not go well. So they'll say things like, we've got to hide it. Like, I'll bring it around the house and throw it in the trash can in the back. They'll say that. Because they all know the worst possible thing in our home is mercy. Because then it creates this atmosphere of injustice. So the truth is, intellectually, they could agree that Dad will sometimes take this child to read his, and sometimes this child to read his. And, you know, mom will sometimes give this child an extra 10 minutes of game time and, or this child an extra cookie. I mean, uh, there's, there's times when parents just want to show grace and mercy. Can we just do that without getting all trounced on for being unjust and unfair? And so they know in their mind they want mercy. But they can be their own worst enemy. Parents, you ever been to a place you go, why do I even do this? Like, you know what? No more amusement parks ever. Forever. In fact, I'm going to buy out Disney World and close it. You know what I mean? Because if you can't accept any form of mercy, then just no mercy at all. Is that what we, we know the kids don't want? A, a merciless world? It's hard. And we're kids, right? We're children of the Father. We're like this. We're no better. We just operate with bigger words. Here's another thing about mercy. When mercy introduces itself into the system, it reestablishes for people the baseline of justice. Uh, this is be the familiar thing. You give child a little bit of mercy once, and, and some, the next day it's how it's always been. Bedtime's eight eight thirty, but you let him stay up till nine to finish watching the show. The next night, eight thirty comes. He's popping popcorn. He's got his goofy slippers. He's lounge back watching TV, and you're like, dude. And he looks at you like you got two heads. He's like, what do you mean, nine o'clock? It's bedtime. It's nine. You do it once. One momentary introduction of mercy into the system and it resets the baseline of justice. We are this way with the Lord. That We are children of the Father. We do this. We adopt an attitude. Think of this with your prayer life. We adopt an attitude of if God can do it, then he ought to do it. If God is capable of mercy, then he owes us mercy. Mercy does not exist in the plane of justice. And this is what we're wrestling with this morning. We have three verses this morning. But it's, they're three difficult verses uh, because in one sense, Paul is caring for his kinsmen who are in a pickle. His Jewish brethren have for 2,000 years had a story, the story of God and the promise of God traveling among his people and then being God's people, God's elect, God's chosen the vessel of God's promise, the vessel of God's blessing, the apple of his eye, they, they have for 2,000 years been the only child, okay? You might, if you're only children, the notion of justice and grace just get all confused because all the grace in the house goes to the same person. So Israel has been like that. Every, all the verses so far have felt As they've understood them, they've kind of downplayed some of the odd ones and they've upplayed them. They felt like the conduit of the mercy of the God of the universe comes through them. And then the gospel of Jesus Christ shows up, which says the problem is a universal problem and the fix, Jesus Christ and faith in him is a universal fix. And you can imagine the only child now realizing he's got 30 adopted brothers and sisters. Can you imagine that? Being an only child and waking up, and your parents coming going, you know what, we had a heart of love. So I know you used to get readers a lot. Now we're going to share it among your 30 brothers and sisters. Forget the fact that they were fatherless. Okay, this is in the economy of a child, in the balance of a child, they do not consider that. They simply look at what has been lost not what has been gained. And that is largely the, the challenge of, of Paul's kinsmen, who by this point, the gospel has been clearly shared. Romans 1 through 8 is the clear explanation in, of the power of the hope that we have in Christ if we trust on him, his ability to take away our sins and, and stand in the place of our sins and his ability through the Spirit to work in us to produce fruits of to life in us. He's described all of that wonderfully well. But at this point in Romans 9, he, he's assuming, he's assuming in the letter that there are his Jewish brothers and sisters who are still wrapped around the axle of, but I thought it was us. This is the question. This is the question of chapters 9 through 11. It's the overarching question. Everything that we read in 9 through 11 must be interpreted through... The overarching question, and I, I say that because people come fishing in nine to eleven with all different kinds of lures, okay. And the question has to do with what about my Jewish kinsmen? where Were they chop, chop liver? Two thousand years are special, and now the gift is universally offered to the entire world. It is not fair is what they say here, or what he assumes they say. Look at verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. He's anticipating the fact that if they finally come to terms with all that's been done, they're going to say, well, this just wasn't fair. God didn't have the right to do that. It's another way of saying it. We don't, we don't talk that way, but we feel that way. You know, Paul had just got done saying, listen, in, in trying to humble their hearts, okay, this is what Paul's doing. This is the hardest part of this letter for his brethren. He's trying to, he's humbling their hearts with a strong arm. If they cannot hear this, they have a hard heart, okay? This is that part of the book. This is the tough love side of the book. And he's trying to humble their hearts. So they're saying, listen, we have been, we've been here longer. We've, we've been invested longer. We've been the faithful ones. All and he's, he's trying to say to them, listen, if it had gone to the older brother in the first place, it would have not have gone to Isaac. It would have gone to Ishmael. And you don't want that to you because you're children of Isaac. And then they would say, but we've, we've worked harder. And he'd say, well, if it goes to the person who works harder, then why did it go to Jacob? Because didn't God choose Jacob in the womb before he'd done any good or evil at all? Doesn't God make it clear that on account of no merit, nothing that we as people can know, God made a selection of Jacob to carry for the promise, not Esau. So in other words, Paul's throwing back in their face the very things that are making, embittering you to the Lord about the gospel of Jesus Christ are the very things that contradict your hope through Isaac and Jacob and, and the line. Your story doesn't even tell that story. And he assumes at this point they're going to say, well, it's just not fair. Just pick one and not the other. You can't. Do you see how mercy has collided with justice? Now, in this moment, I want to be careful. <clears throat> we need to frame, frame the question around the big idea, okay? This, Paul right now is not talking. He's not really talking about salvation and the individual, okay? He's talking about how the promise of God and the revelation of God has been cradled through time and how it has now been offered. Okay, in Colossians, he says, there's been a mystery that's been kept hidden for ages and generations, but now has been disclosed to the saints that God has chosen to show this mystery of Christ in us to the whole world. This is, this is kind of what's at stake for them. And they're saying it is not fair. Now, Paul... I think 14 with, uh, is there injustice by no means? He's challenging them. He's saying this is is a dead-end alley with God. There is no good thing, no good thing that can come from us wondering why God gave them more mercy than us. Okay, that is a path away from God. And so Paul's challenging him here. And this is what he says in 15, listen. For... He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. I've said this before, it's worth worth saying again. Any time that Christ or Paul or Peter any time that they quote a passage, you should think of it as them whistling a tune, a familiar tune for the people so that the people remember the lyrics to the whole song. Okay, that's what he just did there. He just quoted a passage. Um, but they, especially because he's, he's writing this to his Jewish kinsfolk who know the word, they know the lyrics to this song. They know this story very well. You put, if you put your finger where you are and you go to page 63, Exodus 33. Okay, this is where Paul went. Paul just quoted a verse that comes right out of the story of the golden calf. That's where he goes. They say it's not fair. And he says, oh yeah? Do you remember the gold calf? We're going to talk about fairness for a second. you remember the golden calf? The Lord rescues you from Egypt, brings you to his mountain, gives you the Ten Commandments. You say, 'We'll follow. We want to be part of this God. We want this God and all of who he says. We'll take it. We'll take two of it. And then Moses is called up to the mountain to go get the tablets of stone. And while Moses is up there, they become impatient down below. They melt down their old jewelry. They make a golden calf. They prostrate themselves and worship before this idol. And they engage in revelry, uh, godless revelry around it. Pagan. The Lord sends Moses back down. Moses goes down. He sees, this. He sees the covenant broken. And so what does he do? He breaks the covenant. He says them violating the covenant of God. And so he, he says, the covenant's broken. And he smashes the tablets. The wrath of God falls for a brief moment to set the camp back to straight. And then the Lord says this. This is the 33rd chapter. The Lord says something to this effect of, listen, I've made promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and I'm gonna keep those promises. So you guys, you leave the mountain, you go up to the promised land. I'll, uh, you'll be able to go into the promised land and you can have the promised land because I gave it to your forefather Abraham, I made a promise to him that I'm going to keep. I'm just not going to go with you. You go on ahead. I'm not going to go with you because I think that if I went with you, I would strike all of you dead. That's what he says. He says, your spirits are so godless that it's probably not safe that I go with you. So you go without me. You go, you send me a postcard, let me know how it is. I'll stay here at the mountain. And it says this in the fourth verse. When the people heard this disastrous word, it's a great phrase. This, it, they feel the weight of this, the idea of them sojourning in life without God. When they hear this disastrous word, they mourn greatly. The notion. You, you, we don't see the mercy of God until it's about to be pulled away. right? And then it's, A disastrous word. The notion of us living a life of just justice is for us a disastrous word. So Moses goes to the Lord, Lord, don't, oh Lord, don't do this. It's a great moment where Moses intercedes on behalf of the people. Lord, don't do this to us, don't do this to us. And he has this great verse, verse 16. He says, For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct? I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth? Moses is saying, God, we know that there's nothing about us that's worthy at all except for the fact that you were with us. So why would we ever want to go anywhere without you? Now, I find it interesting that Paul, in dealing with his kinsmen who are bitter that a little bit bitter that the rug, rug has been pulled out for them and that the riches of the glory of the kingdom of God are now being shared with the Gentile world, I find it very interesting that he would go back to this place where Moses would say, there's nothing at all distinct about us from all the other people of the world except for God's presence with us. And then the Lord considers, and in verse 19 he says, I will go with you. And he says this, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So the Lord says, okay, I'll go with you. But it's because of my mercy. <laughs> Paul, in writing to his Jewish brothers, who are bitter about the unfairness, may be bitter about the unfairness of God, right? He brings them back to a moment and says, you really want to talk about fair? Let's talk about, we could talk about fair all day long. Did God, was God fair with you? The fact that you, God followed you, took you to the promised land. Was that fair or was it mercy? Mercy. Paul's saying, if you really want to talk about fair, you almost have to say to the Lord, Lord, we want no mercy at all if we're going to talk about fair. Because the, Jew, the Jewish community has been in, brought into the Lord through massive flowing buckets of mercy. Mercy upon mercy upon mercy, time and again, time and again, the Lord has doted on them, has poured out his mercy on them. And for them to see other adopted children coming in going, why are they getting mercy? Paul's saying, can you just for a second remember your story? Because there was a day when God could have just given you justice. not playing judge and jury in, with God is, that itself is a Christian discipline. In your prayer life, do you ever, you know, I didn't even, I've been thinking about this more and more as I've been wrestling through this text of how often in my prayers I come to the Lord with answers. In other words, I have the audacity to tell the Lord what, what he should do but I'm praying so he should be happy I came to him. I graced him with my prayer. I made very wise recommendations as the proper course of action that he should take on my behalf because I'm the fulcrum in the balance of justice in my life. I know what he ought to do and he better be merciful because if he can, he ought to. Here's why you should be, Lord. Lord, you know, this is why we pray for a job that pays more money. Because we presume that we know the answer. Why not pray for a soul that is not subject to fear? Because I know that's God's will for me. He's told me that. I don't find that many times in the Bible he says, Whoa, buddy, I'm waiting for you to pray for more money. Just bring that prayer up. I don't find that. I do find him saying, We've not been given a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. Why do we come to the Lord with all of our, we've already distilled the needs down to nicely packaged answers because we know if he can do it, he ought to do it. You know, hardship happens in your life. Hardship is common to everyone, but hardship sometimes falls harder in some seasons on you than on someone else. And I'm certainly not trying to make light of it. In, well, in the perspective of God's oceans of grace, I want to make light of it. I do. Because sometimes we walk away from God in anger because of a thing that was important to us that we did not get. We think, why did he not do that for us? That is unfair. If we could just see how much grace and love is being given to us in so many places, I think those prayer I think that attitude would be different. I think if, if we're going to see the big arc of this story and appreciate how, what God's trying to do what, through Paul here with his kinsmen, he's trying to say, "Soften your hearts. Soften your hearts. God is not unfair because He's giving them mercy. God is merciful because He's giving them mercy. God's not writing you out because he's writing them in. More loving is not unfair. Verse 16, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Now, this is where in these passages, people want to split the atom and they want to say, God's picking who's saved and who's not saved. That is not the argument here. I, maybe I guess if you just sat here for a million years and thought about it, it would have implications there. That is not the overarching conversation. The overarching conversation is a joyless people because God's mercy has increased. That is the argument. It's people who see a disparity, an apparent disparity of mercy in their eyes and instead of praising the Lord for it, are dealing with a spirit of covetousness because of it. And so he says, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Will here is not like belief. It's more like desire, okay? So Romans, nowhere in Romans is Paul going to belittle faith like human will is in faith. He's making the, the need for faith a pronounced distinction of the believer. Here he's talking about will. And, and there's these two ideas, will and exertion, are the classic two oppositional belief systems to Christianity that we have floating around us doesn't depend on human will. Think of that as like fervent desire, zeal. It would be packaged in American language like this. It doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you're faithful to what you believe. Just be true to yourself. That's like a good bumper sticker. Be true to yourself. You can do it. It's placing the ultimate ethic that God cares about on your sincerity to your belief system. Can you think of a more self-worshiping concept? You be faithful to the things you want to be faithful to. But that, is, that has gospel power in our culture. In other words, there's this sense of if someone is truly sincere to the way that they think, God is obligated to open up the gates of heaven. That line of reasoning, just to say it, that line of reasoning admits the suicide bomber from ISIS to the kingdom of God. Because if someone's sincere, it's them. That's zeal. If that's the key, that's respectable. That's an admirable pattern of living that we should all observe is at least they believe what they say. They're being faithful to their belief system. If what we believe is irrelevant, just how fervently we we'll believe the things we believe, Well, uh, Paul says, it doesn't, it's not based upon that, which was a classic Jewish argument, right? The classic Jewish argument would be our kinsmen, we and our kinsmen have been laboring, laboring to show devotion to the Lord, laboring to show how much we think of ourselves as God's people. We, We have been religious hobbyists about who we are. Doesn't that count for something? To which Paul's saying, no, it does not count for anything. And a little later in the chapter, chapter 10, he's going to say, I know they had zeal, but their zeal was not according to knowledge. Paul says that about himself before he came to Christ. My misplaced zeal caused me to stand and hold cloaks while Stephen was being stoned. This is the first, this first idea of He's trying to create a people who are solely reliant on mercy instead of throwing a spirit God for being merciful to rather be equally reliant on the very same mercy. He's saying their zeal is, does not afford them access to the kingdom, neither does their exertion, which is the classic other oppositional doctrine to Christianity in our country, is he did a lot of really good things. Boy, he was a good person. He worked hard. In fact, we have, we have like this underling doctrine that still has power, which is since nobody's really doing that many good things, we actually have a substitutionary one, which is he never really did anything that bad. We get into heaven on not even doing something really bad. I mean, can you think of a more lukewarm, self-centered doctrine? But for Paul's kinsmen, those were the two things. God owes us the kingdom because we care about it, because we want it, because we have been waiting for 1,500 years to have it, and we have been working for it. And Paul is saying, you are going to train wreck yourself if you don't grab onto mercy awful quick. God does not care about will, nor does he care about exertion. God is a God of mercy. That's it. So that when we see mercy, when we see the mercy of God fall on the earth, we should rejoice. We should rejoice and it should conjure conjure up in our intellect the ways that mercy has fallen on us. We should be people who want other churches around us to be healthy, greater mercy, Lord. We should be people that want good things to happen in other families, in our neighborhoods and in our church. We want the mercy of God and the well-being of God to, be, to fall upon the whole earth. You know, why do mission to the frontier? Because the mercy of God has not been experienced or seen or clearly delineated in the frontier. That's why we do Mercy in Frontier. I'm going to close this in prayer. I guess maybe a good assignment, a homework assignment, practical to take is how, under what circumstances, what basis do you come before the Lord? I know you're going to say, for those of you who are in the in crowd, I know you're going to say, I believe in Jesus. I believe in his death and resurrection. I'm not asking about the list of things that you believe, okay? I think that's important. It's for another day. I'm saying, um, what's the basis of your relationship and your spirit with the Lord? Does he owe you something? I want you to filter your prayers. You you know, say them out loud. We are quiet prayers, and that's the easiest way to get heresy by with the Lord. It's just not say it out loud. You say it out loud, and you're going to hear yourself. You will hear how selfish you are. Just go in a room where no one's listening, and say it out loud. I stutter with the Lord when I'm out loud because I am halfway down a sentence and I'm like, I can't say that. I can't say that either. And then I'm like, Lord, I can't say anything right now. And that's my prayer, which is better than my silent prayer, which would have been eloquent graceless but eloquent as take yourself out of the fulcrum of the balance of justice and observe your disposition before the lord and your your remark the degree of satisfaction you have with the mercy he has given you is it not enough that christ came to save you reclaim you for him? If that's the small amount of mercy you've received from God, praise the Lord. Because it's no small thing. Let me pray, Lord. Thank you for this day in your word. Thank you for oh, the way you have secured an enduring testament for us to know you. Father, I do pray. I do pray we'd see your mercy on our lives and in our lives. I pray, Lord, we'd be people who would be better at seeing what you have done for us than than observing what you have not yet done for us. Make us people who pray prayers of thanksgiving and not just prayers of need. Father, even when we pray to you and come to you with intercession and asking you for things, Lord, help us to be people who lace it, lace it with an awareness of your goodness. Farther purge from our fellowship, uh, as feelings of jealousy or covetousness, feelings of injustice for not uh, being what you think we, what we think we ought to be. Just mercy, Lord, help us to see just mercy. And I pray this in Jesus' name, Amen.